0: Greetings, friends and colleagues. This is the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast. I am Scott Lee. Our guests today are Adam Jordan and Rebecca Cordova, two of the founding members of the All Y'all Social Justice Collective. All Y'all provides social justice-oriented professional development experiences for teachers and other educators focused mainly in southern states. Adam Jordan is an Associate Professor of Special Education at the College of Charleston. He is a former K-12 alternative middle and high school teacher, and his work focuses on creating equitable and healthy spaces for students. Rebecca Cordova is a professor in the Teacher Inquiry Program at the University of Florida. Adam and Rebecca, thank you for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having, for
0: having us, us, man. So uh, first off, if, uh, one of you or both of you, however you want to do it, could briefly give us just a short description of what the All Y'all Social Justice Collective is all about.
2: Sure, I would be happy to. We are a group, of, we've got about 10 folks um, that make up the collective members. We are teachers, faculty members, and education activists in the Southeast. And so our work is to provide professional development uh, that's justice oriented for teachers in the South at no cost. So that is mm-hmm. our primary work.
0: And no cost. At
1: no cost to them.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah nothing is really free. <laughs> right, right. So anyway, well, great. And we're going to get deeper into a lot more about that uh, as we go on. First off, Adam, I'd like to ask you, you curate and sometimes write a column on the All Y'all site called the Mouth of the South. And in your very first column, you uh, state people should be happy. Teachers should be happy. Now, it seems sad that it's necessary to say that in the first place. But can you tell us a little bit more about what you were thinking when you wrote that?
1: Yes, for sure. So first of all, Rebecca also really helps to coordinate that Mouth of the South piece, so I can't take all the credit for that. (laughs) But when we wrote that first piece, it was kind of our introduction in in the kind of column writing realm of things uh, for all y'all. And I wrote those words, I I, I mulled for a long time about what words are the right words to start a column like that with, Right. And those words if you read the whole piece they were kind of rooted in the mission of all y'all as well as kind of my own background so if you read the piece i grew up uh, in a a very small place small town in uh rural north georgia uh called pocatalago and i grew up uh you know working poor and a lot of times in the academy or in higher ed when you talk about that kind of background people sort of have a sympathetic response. Like it just must've been terrible, right? Mm-hmm. You were just in those foothills on dirt roads and you must've been miserable. Two of our biggest supporters in all y'all are David and Teresa Prince. I don't know if you know those guys, but David is a social studies teacher by day in Kentucky and, and Teresa is a preschool teacher. And by night they're musicians and they are um, go by a band called Luna and the Mountain Jets or they have these alternate personalities that they use called the laid back country picker and Honey, who's this stoic, uh, I would call feminist <laughs> character, and he wrote a song called Bonaparte, talking about this thing, talking about growing up in rural Kentucky and telling people like, you know, the I grew up here, the holler I grew up in is underwater now because they built a dam, and people rhetorically saying, "Oh man, you know that must have been terrible. It must have been awful. How can this be true?" I feel for you. And his response mm-hmm. was always, "I probably had it better than you think, right? I know right. I had it better than you think." And that's what those words for me, I had it way better than you think, you know, even though we were poor and for me, the root of a lot of that happiness that I had was teachers, you know when you go to school, mm-hmm. teachers provide continuity, teachers are always telling you, um you can do this, you can do that
0: well and and in that column uh it was interesting to me that you were talking about food, even if it was just candy or something that different teachers were would hand sure. out my brother. and yeah. <laughs> And, and the bus driver. And, you know, you, you still think about it in my work, uh, in schools, I, I taught, I have taught in rural areas too, but mostly in urban areas, you know, I mean, still that's where kids had to come to eat a lot of sure. times was it, was it school? Yeah, that's place. right.
1: And I think people sometimes mistake both rural and urban communities. I mean, rural, rural communities, you know, they, a lot of times they, they stick together. It's not all this misery that sometimes gets perpetuated same in urban communities. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you ever uh, follow Chris Emden's work, I remember him talking about giving cameras to kids when he was teaching in in urban environments and expecting them in in like a weathering lesson to come back and take photos of, of buildings that were falling apart or whatnot. And they would take pictures of sunsets and happy things. And (laughs) and I I feel like that's sort of the theme is as all y'all we we're not, we're out to kind of bust some myths about the South right. and, and bust some of these stereotypes that become stereotypes that end up uh, marginalizing people, right? Mm-hmm. And that's all connected to me. So that teachers are happy, people yeah. are happy. It's connected to like breaking down a lot of those myths.
0: And yeah, I'd like to um, uh, bring uh, Rebecca back in also further down in the same piece. You say that kind of how you all, I guess, got connected, got to know each other was conversations that you had where you say that uh, both of you share, and I'm quoting here, one, a love for the South and for teaching, two, a disdain for exploitive, unrealistic professional development and education. And I'd like for each of you to tell us a little bit more about what this means uh, to you.
2: I'm like Adam, I grew up in uh, rural areas, also from a family that was fairly challenged in terms of, of monetary resources. My dad was a clear cutter, and we moved around a lot in the Ozarks. Mm-hmm. And so, but I didn't go to school until fifth grade, into public school. My mom was an educator, and she chose to keep us home, and she was very focused on us learning basically not from institutions. So I taught, was taught from a very early age that education was not connected to institutions and that pretty much imprinted my ideas around what teaching and learning was. So when I finally went to school in fifth grade, you know, it was very startling to me to finally see what schools were. And so as much as I loved and made great relationships with teachers, it was very clear to me very early on that schools were really about control and compliance because I had lived without them and had been fine. So, <laughs> you know, I navigated schooling pretty well, but I became a teacher primarily because I hated school. I hated being controlled. I hated feeling like there's only one right way to do things. I hated you know, all kinds of, you know, I love my rural spaces, but the reality was, is that it's also can be very hard to grow up in rural spaces when you are a religious minority or, or anything else. And so I also was very prone to understanding that not, not everyone loves school. And, and I wanted to be that teacher that would help make the difference for other kids. And so I think one of the reasons Adam and I clicked so much was because we came from some similar backgrounds, and we also can see through also a lot of the uh, work that schools do. Like we can both love them and critique them, and we critique them because we really believe in the work that they could do, but we critique them because a lot of the things that schools and and professional development and teachers are doing don't always aren't always in the best interest of kids, and they're best they're in the best interest of systems. So we wanted to try to make a difference in the ways we could
0: do you have anything to add to that adam or
1: yeah sure i mean just terms to the the first point right that's this connection to the south and mm-hmm. to teaching i think both of those in my head are kind of connect in that i think like if you talk to a lot of rural southerners or urban southerners um, and this is not true just for people in the south this is true for people anywhere you are in the world right mm-hmm. there's there's something in the human experience of being connected to your place whatever your place is and however you define your place, you know, for Mm -hmm. me, that is the rural South. And because when something is yours, you, you can take the the criticism of it and you can criticize it, but you also have to fight for it. Right. And I feel like teaching is the same way teachers right now are getting a lot of, we we loved them in March. Right. But right now they're they're not doing the right thing. Right. So Uh we've shifted that narrative and that means that we have to fight for those people. And we have to fight for those places um, because it it matters. So I would would just add that.
0: You know, I keep thinking about doing some work separate from this podcast dealing with uh, social justice also. And so I always think about even the word social justice and talking about social justice is kind of taboo in the profession. Although, you know, maybe that could be changing a little bit in the culture around us, but, You've both mentioned about the importance of teachers being involved in change. What do you think teachers could or should be doing?
1: I can, I can start this. And so you, that's a huge question, Scott. And you, yes, and you know, I know. And you know and we, we
0: won't finish it today, right. but well, any
1: anytime you get a huge question, you're not a Southern Appalachian if you don't quote your grandmama. So I'm going to quote my <laughs> grandmama. Okay. So my grandmama always told me, So she grew up also very poor in in rural North Georgia and her dream was to become a teacher. But of course, she didn't ever get to realize that because of poverty and and other issues. Mm -hmm. But she always said to me, when you see something wrong, you better use whatever power you got to make it right. And so the word social justice, the phrase social justice being taboo, to me, that's neither here nor here nor there to me. When I see things that are not right, not wrong, I have to use whatever power I have to make it right, and so to me, that is what all y'all is. It's looking and saying, what's going Where, where do people need support? What's going wrong, and what power do we have to make it right so And, and, that, and in the professional development world, to go back to, to go back a second, professional development is often exploitive because it always blows my mind that you have uh, you go into a school and you have a room full of people with degrees. And and love of kids, and they're signing up to do a job where they're not going to be wealthy, and they're giving themselves all this. Stuff. You have all this intellectual capital right in front of you, and then what do right. you do? You talk to them, not with right. them.
0: Right. We've all seen too much edutainment as yes. opposed yeah. to professional development. But yeah. You know, yeah, that's
1: the phrase I want to be taboo. Edutainment. <laughs> edutainment. Not, not, not right. social justice. Edutainment.
0: Yeah. Edutainment.
1: Right.
2: Right. It's perfect that Adam would say that because I think that's also something I definitely grew up with. My mom always always told us you know if you have something you share it you give it and i think she was mostly talking about material tangible items in terms of like how does it mean to be in a small rural area what does it mean to be in a small community you share what you have you always share what you have but it always i think carried over into more intangible things like care and energy and labor and if you can help someone build their fence or you can help someone haul trash um, it's not just the truck you're, you're loaning out, right? It's your time, it's your care, mm-hmm. it's your, it's your compassion. And then when you pair it up with my faith drives a lot of what I do. And, and so I was raised very clearly to understand that, you know, Judaism asks us to do one thing and that one thing is to pursue justice and everything mm-hmm. else is pretty secondary. And so when you pair those things together, to me, it was like Adam says, it's almost irrelevant what certain systems may determine um, taboo or not taboo, because one, the systems that are exploit people and don't want to change. So they're going to make something taboo that might w- disrupt them. And two, it's never wrong to fight for justice. That is the, that is the foundation of, of my faith and my work in this world. And my mom raised me to believe that being a teacher was the most amazing and powerful and transformative thing you could offer to the world. I think where I come from is it doesn't always mean that school is that place, right? And so I want to see education and teaching as something that we ask for more of in schools because sometimes it's there and then sometimes it's not. And I think we need to be clear about why. And so when we love on teachers, it's also this understanding that ultimately we're there to serve the interests of education. And that's a powerful experience and they deserve mm-hmm. that respect and professional development could be a place for that. And often right. it's not.
0: what you all are bringing up, talking about compassion and empathy and, and justice, you know, we almost in schools put those in a box, our bullying prevention or social emotional learning rather than in everything that we do. So I guess my question, and it's another big one, How would you encourage teachers to take action?
2: I can just use my own daily experience right now. I think that there's a lot of variables in terms of how teachers can be agents of change. I think mostly it'll come down to your own beliefs and understandings of the purposes of education and your role in it. You know, like what drives you to do this incredibly challenging and hard Mm work because you're going to sustain yourself when you are clear on the reasons why you're in it. And I think that that's, that's crucial because no matter what you do, if you don't have a foundation or a belief system about this hard work, then it's going to be hard to go do the the marathon work, right? You have to be sustained by something and, and institutions alone are not going to sustain you. So I would say personal work is key. And then the second thing I'd say is, like, right now, I, I am an, an advocate here in, in my small district in North Florida, and we have a significant political meltdown happening here because of the reopening plans that Florida is forced to do um, and the teachers that are having to respond to that. And so I'm watching and supporting teachers organizing but they have a couple things that are, are a struggle, right? They, number one, you know, when you don't have a strong union to support your work in some, in our right to work states, that's a challenge. So when you really have, which I am also kind of happy to help with, is it's kind of this most grassroots type of organizing, non-institutional mm-hmm. support work that, that we're doing. And I think that's that's key. And in order to do that, you need to find allies and you need to to take the deep breaths and and find the courage that is gonna propel you forward. And you need to be in solidarity with other people in ways you might never have thought about being before. And you need to take some bold steps in ways that are strategic. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to do this important next phase work. And there are, of course, a million different reasons why it's scary and people don't wanna do it and they're fearful and all of those reasons are valid my only response to teachers who come to me pretty much on the daily is, you know, how can I still do this? I might lose my job. Um, How can I still do that? I, I'll, if I, if I make the superintendent mad, he'll move me to the other side of the county and put me on, you know, ISS duty, you know, like there's, they're genuinely scared. The the courage is key.
0: It is interesting. Uh, I've worked in, in myself in systems that have tenure protection and don't have tenure protection. But even teachers who have tenure protection seem to be just as fearful, you know, because you can be marginalized no matter what. The the fear is.
1: And um, I would, if I can interject. And yes, I would, please do it. And I would add to that, but I think the answer to your question has to be situated in time, you know. And so the answer is the question really is what can you do right now and not what can you do like in, in general forever, you know, mm-hmm. cause that's going to change. And I think one thing that we're missing right now is we have teachers who have, uh, are in the middle of a pandemic. We have students and families in the middle of a pandemic. We have people experiencing extreme stress. We have people having to teach virtually and in person simultaneously and get paid the same amount of money for two jobs. And so what can we do to support justice work, I think, has to be supporting the well-being, the mental well-being of teachers and students. And and I think that that is really critical. To ask someone to be courageous is absolutely, I agree with every word that Rebecca just said, but you have to also be healthy to be courageous. You know, you have to be supported to be courageous. So we have to do that. We have to keep fighting for teachers and and families.
2: Yeah, and I would, I think the key in doing solidarity work is making sure that, and this is something I, I talk to teachers about a lot is. None of us can be in this alone. You know, I'm. I'm just in my district. I'm just a parent. I'm not a teacher. I have four mm-hmm. kids here, so I can do a ton of parent advocacy work on their behalf because I risk nothing. I'm not going to get fired. They're still going to have to take my kid to school. Um, <laughs> so when I talk about strategic organizing, like I think it's really key. What Adam is saying, like health is key because. And there's a way to build solidarity and come together and say, this is what we need to do. Who is best situated to do this well, right? And sometimes not a teacher. Sometimes it's a parent. Maybe it's another, maybe it's a professor that's local to the area. Maybe it's students, right? And so, but you can't have those conversations when people just see themselves as not together. Parents are here. Teachers are here. Students are here. We need to build coalitions for justice work. And then come together and say, because I mean, when we look back, and this is one of the things I love about all y'all is too many people have deficit ideas about the South, but the reality is is that our major social justice movements and radical revolutionaries and people who pushed hard in the face of, of fear, these movements are born in the South. So we're, we are then, you know, we're just doing the next iteration of that work. And when you look at history, none of these movements were just, isolated people right they came together very strategically you just don't always know it because you're not taught it to me solidarity work is the work it's just we need to be we need to know how to do solidarity work and i think that's one of the things all y'all likes to do because when we bring teachers together we're not just bringing teachers together we always say community activists students if you're just interested in education if you're a parent if you're a professor if you're um a lawyer like everybody come because we really are all in this together. So let's act like we are.
0: I am trying my best, especially during this fall to remember to ask this to everybody. Can you recommend a book or two or resource or two for folks out there?
1: I, I, so I don't, so I know that this is being, you know I brought a stack of things because I'm oh. one of those, I'm one of those people. I can't read one book at a time. I like right. have to read like <laughs> 30 things at a time. Uh-huh. Um, so for me right now, I think Elizabeth Katz what you're getting wrong about Appalachia. I don't know if you've read that. I have not. Um, so it's not teaching related but it is this repositioning uh not a repositioning it's an accurate historical um, right. positioning of these issues we face in Appalachia and the extent of the south. And I I know that's not teaching related but but all y'all's Still. about all y'all's about place, right? Mm-hmm. And that always situates me in in place and I appreciate it. And then there's two authors that also do that. Right now, I can't just read academic things. Like, I'm losing my <laughs> mind a little bit quarantine. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if you've ever read anything by David Joy, who is in western North Carolina, or Silas House, who's in Kentucky. Both of those novelists right now sort of get me through when I'm having a tough day. I would recommend teachers, if you're looking for an outlet and you're looking for something situated in the south in Appalachia, both of those authors are just, they're just killing it. I'm also like steady making my class read. This may be the hundredth time I've read this book is um, Kim Nielsen has a book called a disability history of the United States. I'm a, I'm a special ed professor. So uh, she situates disability history in historical context in the United States from native Americans through, you know, modern day. It always helps me when we think back to like, what should we be doing right now? What is the social justice work? That book always helps me situate the reality that the work we're doing is we didn't start it. Like it's right. so deep and it's so and it's so connected. You know, you don't just do work in the area of race or class or gender or abilities. You know, you it's all it's all connected in, in, in a way of people uh, being connected. So all those books, and I got about thirty more I could do, but you know, yeah, I'll, I'll stop and let I'll let Rebecca name name some books. <laughs>
2: And since most of my work is uh, historical foundations, this is the book that I make every single student read. This is a book, this is a Joel Spring book, Deculturalization and the Struggle for Equality A Brief History of the Education of Dominated Cultures in the United States. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the few books where you can get a very clear understanding of the history of schooling and how it can as an institution, act either as, you know, an institution that normalizes or marginalizes. And that I think is key when we're having conversations about the role of justice work um, in schools, is that it's not a current thing. This is something that has hundreds and hundreds of years. And so when we can position ourselves um, in that historical timeline, I think it helps us to sustain teachers because they don't see themselves as the only ones. Mm-hmm. And then there are two other ones I would recommend. Schooling the Freed People, uh, which looks like this. And it's Teaching, Learning, and Struggle for Black Freedom, 1861 to 1876. Obviously, this is specific for anyone that's really interested in the history of education. But I would say this one and any other book that talks about black liberation through schooling, because it's not, that is, when we learn about the history of education, we often just talk about it just generally without being specific and saying, it's not the same, this history is not the same for everybody everyone has a different history with schooling and we often don't come clean about that. Most, I'm currently reading again, uh, Ghostly Matters. I don't know if either one of you have read, read this by Avery Gordon. Um, it's called Haunting in the Sociological Imagination.
1: <laughs>
2: and I only say this, uh, it's, a ve- it's an academic and it's a very surreal book, but it helps me specifically talk to teachers about what sociological haunting is. And the idea that so much of what's in the past continues to haunt us today in our actions. So we think that we are, have like our own, I'm just doing this because I want to do this in my classroom. and so. But when we talk about history and historical hauntings, it helps understand that so much of what we do has been shaped by cultural institutions. And so we want to always question what we do, why we do it. And so if we're thinking about classrooms, it's good to question why we do things. It helps us imagine new ideas a little bit better.
0: I find it interesting being a uh, former history teacher myself that you you brought up the second book because reconstruction, I think, is the most misunderstood period. I I keep thinking about going back to this one, Lies My Teacher Told Me. Uh, I just reread that myself. It just continues to amaze me the narrative that is sometimes missed and the importance of reconstruction in the history of of public education in general. I mean, that's when uh, compulsory education started. Now, they didn't require everybody to go to school, but it was the first time every state created a public school system. You know, it was a reconstruction uh, reform, changed the country uh, forever. So, yeah.
2: And I think that's of particular importance to us in the South because we didn't have compulsory education at the same time as everyone else, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we had, the states had to rework our systems until the states were readmitted into the union and drafted their own state constitutions, right? So this... So when we think about a historical timeline and the purposes of school and why we do the things we do and, and we want to put things in a historical lens, which I think is really key for our profession, we have to see it from a very honest perspective. And so right. when we think regionally, people always want to talk about the history of schools and they always start in the Northeast. If we want to be honest about, there's a huge difference between the South's history of education and the Northeast history of education. Right. And it matters when we do professional development. And it matters, like Adam said, to be contextual in a time and a place and a space. It's good to be accurate. And I think it's one thing in professional development we always like to see is how can we fill in some of the gaps that maybe you all didn't get either in your teaching program or in your current professional development? Like, what can Mm -hmm. we offer that's going to help you be a better teacher because you're going to know more? than you did before and not mm-hmm. no more like you, you didn't know things, but because it was maybe by design, not, not shared. Right.
0: It still amazes me, you know, just how much, not just misinformation now, but misinformation about uh, history and understanding. And you talked earlier, Rebecca, about institutionalization of schools. If we understood the history of schools better and why, schooling particularly in the south happened it changes it changes the mission of what it is that we do it changes your understanding of the mission of what it is that we do and you're nodding your head (laughs) and you can't see it yes
2: yes a (laughs) hundred times yes i'm sure adam is probably he's he's definitely heard me say that more than once before
0: (laughs) (laughs) i found all y'all totally by accident because I'm a fan of The uh, Bitter Southerner.
1: Okay. I and, wanted to ask you how you found us. Yeah. I, I wanted to flip the script here and be like, tell us, Scott, how did yeah. you find us?
0: I, I had been reading The Bitter, bitter Southerner for a while, and <laughs> it was right after your, um, uh, The All Y'all in Dahlonega in 2019, because I'm like, oh, man, I wish I had found out about you all two weeks ago. I would have gone. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, for kind the of bitter- by accident.
1: The better, the better Southerner. Um, you know, they've been huge supporters. Chuck and, and Kyle and Josina, they have they've been um, really good to us. So I'm, uh, you know, we're we're glad you found us through them. And if anybody listening to this doesn't know the Better Southerner, you need to go check out the Better Southerner.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Last. Summer, um, I had stopped doing interviews uh, for this podcast, and so I was just uh, doing commentaries uh, through the summer, and uh, I did, did do an episode uh, back in, I think that was published back in June, about an article in The Bitter Southerner about Ahmad Arbery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, always been a fan of, or have ever since I found it, have been a fan of the Bitter Southerner. Yeah, yeah the Bitter Southerner
1: connected. Uh, the Bitter Southerner connected Rebecca and I. That's how we originally connected. Was oh. uh, through the through the Bitter Southerner. Yeah. Okay. My my friend Todd Holly and I, who's at Kent State, he's a social studies professor. We wrote an education column for a long time for the oh, okay for the Bitter Southerner. And that's how we got connected.
2: Yeah, yeah. I just I Story love the Bitter Southerner. Day. Yep. And I just adored their work. And so it was a perfect opportunity for us to meet.
1: We'll save that for next, next time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. To be continued.
2: Yes.
0: (laughs) Thank you once again and look forward to uh, continuing our conversation.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Scott. We
0: really
2: enjoyed it. Yes. Thank you, Scott, so much. Really appreciate it.
1: This has
0: been episode number 20, the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast is hosted and produced by R. Scott Lee, who retains copyright. We encourage diverse opinions. However, opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of producer, partners, or underwriters. Guests were not compensated for appearance, nor did guests pay to appear. Transcripts are available following the podcast publication at our website, thoughtfulteacherpodcast.com. Sponsorship opportunities or other inquiries may also be made on the Contact Us page at our website, ThoughtfulTeacherPodcast.com. Please follow the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast on Twitter at Dr. R. Scott Lee and on Facebook at Facebook.com, Thoughtful Teacher Podcast. Proud
2: member of the PodNuga Network.